call to order the regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council for September 18th, 2023. Will you please join me in the flag salute? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Would the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mark. Present. Councilmember McConnell. Here. Councilmember Poby. Here. Councilmember Roberts. Here. All right, I'd like to proclaim the uh, this month is National uh, Hispanic Latinx American Heritage Month. In accordance with our hybrid protocols, we no longer read the proclamations out loud if there is not someone present to receive them, but the full text is available on the agenda online. Next up is approval of the agenda. Are there any changes to the proposed agenda? All right, seeing none, the agenda is adopted unanimously. Next up is report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Good evening, council. Join us tomorrow for the final workshop in the Go Electric series, hosted by the cities of Lake Forest Park, Kenmore, and Shoreline. Learn why heat pumps are the best way to heat and cool your home and how they can save you money and make life more comfortable. We'll review upfront discounts and tax credits and offer a Q&A with community members who have installed heat pumps at their homes so you can learn from their experiences. Visit the city's calendar at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar for all the details. Help celebrate welcoming home and build inclusive and welcoming communities for all people regardless of differences. Join community consultant Jolene Jang and Kevin P. Henry on Wednesday for a workshop on taking anti-racism and inclusion to action. This interactive workshop explores issues affecting people from diverse backgrounds, including people of color and members of the LGBTQIA community. Visit shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar for information and to RSVP. Join artist Salome MC for this experimental documentary, which will explore the effects of today's unprecedented urbanization to human social ties. On and off camera community participation will be key to creation of this piece. Visitors are encouraged to add their vision to the documentary through the medium of their choosing, interviews, bodily movements, visual creations, handwritten messages, audiovisual recordings, and so on. All ages are welcome. There will be a multiple open studio dates coming up, so learn more and see other upcoming dates at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. As you and the Planning Commission continues to study ground floor commercial regulations in Shoreline, we are asking Shoreline residents and business owners to provide their input. Please visit engage.shorelinewa.gov forward slash ground floor and take a few minutes to tell us about other areas where ground floor commercial has worked well and what you would like to see in Shoreline. We're using our new engagement platform for this survey and we look forward to offering more opportunities for the public to provide input there soon. And then finally, the Planning Commission will meet on Thursday, September 21st at 7 p.m. in the Council Chamber and online via Zoom. The agenda and information on how to participate are available on the city's web calendar. And that concludes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. Next up are the council reports. Are there any council reports? Councilmember Ramsdale. Thank you, Mayor. Um, earlier today, I attended a uh, home tour that was sponsored by the Homestead Community Land Trust. Um, the tour consisted of about 30 
uh, members, uh, well, 30 people in all. They were uh, representation from staff and council from Kenmore, um, uh, Bothell, uh, Lake Forest Park, and a few of us from Shoreline were there. Um, we got to see um, up in person um, the types of uh, land trust developments that were being um, uh, built in uh, West Seattle, South Seattle, and Tukwila. And it's just was really an inspiring tour um, uh, to see like what types, uh, what alternatives there are that are affordable alternatives for families who want to um, uh, purchase a home, build some equity, um, rather than and renting. So it, I was, it was an excellent uh, um, tour. There was a lot of enthusiasm um, from, from the attendees um, at that tour. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Moore. Thank you, Mayor. I attended the Solid Waste Advisory Committee on Friday. I've been appointed. My term starts in October, but I wanted to listen in to what they had to say. I was really astounded to find out that 25% of single-family residents' waste is uh, compostable, but only 18% of people compost any of it. So a big gap. Thank you. Councilmember McConnell. Thank you, Mayor. A few Fridays ago, uh, the uh, transportation boards, actually all three of them, uh, met uh, in person, but uh, many of the, uh, the other members also joined in Zoom. There were so many uh, pages, I, I couldn't actually quite tell um, how many came, but it was north and south end, and of course, um, uh, gee, seashore, which, which is what um, Councilmember Poby and I are on. So uh, we had done these joint transportation meetings before, and it was really nice. I think the, we missed being in person. So, so that was exciting. Uh, we had two presentations. One was on uh, climate uh, change updates, but the um, other one that's really exciting was the King County. Not that the other one isn't right, Natasha. Um, the King County Metro uh, group gave a, a presentation on electrification, and I have some notes because I really did not want to forget to say that this region is the leader and actually the only region nationally that has a goal of zero emission, uh, of a zero emission fleet, which is, uh, as the staff said, it's exciting but very daunting task, especially because we don't have anybody to, you know, really follow. Uh, the, um, let's see. We're developing, the Washington State EV Council is developing a statewide transportation electrification strategy by January of 2024. We saw lots of slides about the, um, <clears throat> the electrification of our um, transit, mass transit, you know, our, our buses. And so there's a station down the south end which has huge, you know, uh, I didn't see it, so I can just only imagine they're basically battery stations for the buses to to um, to to um, I don't know it's not filling to to charge them back up uh, so it's really exciting because I remember a few years ago when they we decided to do that but it's very costly there's lots of grants involved as there is just about anything that's of such a magnitude and uh, so there are grants and I just assume that it would not be people like council members who would write them, but people like our uh, Natasha Waters and, and all the other uh, excellent people we have on our staff that are always bringing in lots of grant money. So appreciate that. And uh, 
looking forward to uh, us being the leader in a lot of the uh, changes in transportation and uh, other things because we are pretty progressive and I'm very proud of that. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. All right, next up is public comment. It's an opportunity for members of the public to address us on any of the agenda items or any item of concern. We ask that uh, members limit their comments to three minutes and start with their first, uh, their first and last name in their city of residence. I believe we have one person signed up for remote. Do we have anyone signed up in person? Lathan Wayne. All right, Mr. Wayne, whenever you're ready. It's always to be uh, in front of the council and I appreciate all you guys do for the community and citizens for people with special needs. Um, my name is Lathan Wayne. Uh, I'm here on the behalf of Banchero Disability Partners. Uh, we now have a, a advisory council and um, I'm the president of the advisory council and the chairperson and um, what Banchero does is uh, our staff, caregivers, go into people's homes and take care of other people and um, make sure that we're well taken care of. And sometime, uh, I, we would love to have you guys uh, come and take a tour of the program. And uh, the, the executive director is Carol Schalter. Uh, you can reach her at 367. 7795. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wayne. And I believe we have one person signed up remotely. Derek Blackwell. Whenever you're ready, Mr. Blackwell. Hello. Uh, this is Derek Blackwell. I live nearby the Madeira Project on Linden Avenue. Uh, the neighborhood has major traffic safety concerns with the finished design of this project, which calls for only one driveway connecting to the garage, very near the corner of 179th. Whereas the southern driveway is planned to connect only to a side door for emergencies, but not the garage. Considering the gargantuan size of the building and for many other reasons, there needs to be garage access at the south end too. Um, I cc'd all of you on September 8th with a very detailed explanation of the hazards the design as planned will cause and other neighbors offered very carefully considered reasons why they agree. I hope you did see this. Uh, you may be wondering why you haven't heard from me in a long time. Well, I followed instructions. The information the neighborhood received from the city planning emailed to us again by Kate Lee last week, again you were CC'd, boils down to residents have a two-week comment period, that was over a year ago, and beyond this, no official channel for any real input until after the determination of non-significance, after which our only option is an appeal in King County Court. Here's the opening paragraph of my reply to this, which hopefully you also saw you were included sent on Saturday, two days ago. Uh, there's one word in this I'm not entirely happy with. I wonder if anyone can spot it. I'll be back next week to tell you which word. After having spent well over 100 hours looking into the nuts and bolts of filing an appeal and finding it was very nearly an impossibility, even with the aid of an attorney, 
I suggest that out of consideration for people's time missed from work, etc., that the city simply communicate to residents that they have no real power to oppose a land use action instead of leading them on a wild goose chase. Uh, I'll be back next week to tell you more about this. Thank you, Councilmember Mark, for your encouragement and for pointing out to me this is a safety issue that will be with us for the next 40 years. My apologies, I was unable to write a one paragraph son summary of this. There are so many angles to this bad situation on Linden Avenue, it's hard to keep them all in mind. So I've written up 15 points. It's the first email at the very bottom of the thread that's come your way. If short on time, I suggest skimming through for the phrases I bolded. That won't take you very long. Uh, thank you for hearing me and thank you for all you do in these difficult times. Thank you, Mr. Blackwell. Is there anyone else in person who would like to speak? All right, seeing none, we'll close public comment. Next up is the consent calendar. Deputy Mayor Robertson. I move approval of the consent calendar. Second that. Will the clerk please call the votes? Yes. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember Mark. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. All right, the consent calendar passes unanimously, which brings us to study item 8A, which is a discussion of the transportation impact fee updated approach. I believe Mr. Raker will be presenting in person with other staff members present for questions. Great, thank you. Give me a moment, as it's my first time in person in front of council, so bear with me on the tech. Yeah, hi, so I'm Jeff Raker, Senior Transportation Planner with under Natasha Walters. I'm here tonight with Nathan Daum, Natasha Walters, and Kendra Breland, who is the consultant supporting the work on the transportation impact fee updates. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited to be here in front of you to discuss how your insight on the transportation impact fee program. We've worked as staff to structure this to really be strategic about advancing a number of city goals um, in addition to ensuring that we have a transportation system that supports those community development objectives through this transportation impact fee program. Um, so I'll go through today to summarize each staff recommendation, attempt to respond to questions that were brought up in the last July 17th uh, council meeting discussion. And we have essentially a draft proposal of staff recommendations today um, and the council discussion related to that. On October 16th, we'll return with a more finalized proposal with code amendments and revisions, ordinance re uh, resolutions as needed, um, as well as uh, a focus on November 6th being our date for a scheduled adoption. Um, this is a summary of the staff recommendations contained in the staff report. Um, essentially, we are looking to assess impact of development based on person trips, not vehicle trips. This is in alignment with the transportation element and a focus on multimodal um, advances of, of transportation. Uh, second recommendation is to update the list of projects to be funded by TIF uh, that also addresses multimodal project needs in accordance with the state allowance this year. Um, to, uh, that allows TIF to be spent on multimodal projects and an, uh, an adjustment to the rates that uh, we charge on transportation impact fees. Um, we also discuss an alignment with state requirements for middle housing and accessory dwelling units 
and what we've done to address that. A 15% reduction um, on the fee in high activity areas where we intend to focus growth and fulfill obligations for um, sort of growth management um, while um, maintaining an exemption for low income housing and trying to advance those collective needs. Um, we're also, the reason Nate is here is to adjust exemptions to the businesses expiring or sunsetting in December, and we have a number of sort of adjustments that we've proposed. So the first is to modify the evaluation method for determining the impact of development projects from vehicle trips to person trips. The pros of this is it allows us to apply TIF funding to a larger set and a broader set of projects um, addressing these multimodal needs. It does add some complexity to um, the independent impact assessments and credits being uh, distributed to developers for their investments in our projects, um, whether that be financial or construction. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the, the first proposal. Staff recommendation number two is to adopt an updated list of 19 projects, uh, formerly the projects were focused on roadway improvements. This now expands it to a set that are within the constrained plan of the transportation element um, and uh, selected based on a number of factors that I'll go into on the next slide. Um, this is not a commitment to construct all of these projects using these TIF funds. It is. It allows us to flexibly apply the funds across these projects. Um, it will lead to um, uh, the update in rate uh, will increase the revenue and funding. It adds about 25% to our revenues to support the transportation investments we've outlined as a city. Um, it also advances a number of priorities citywide um, and aligns with peers. It's uh, pretty much in line with rates of peer cities within the Puget Sound area. Um, the con, obviously, is it does increase costs to developers, um, but we have structured that to minimize impacts on development um, in uh, particular areas and in different ways um, for the city. This is a map of the project list. If you're interested in reviewing the staff report, appendices have, or attachments have, um, the list of projects included. The total value is $393 million in 2023 dollars. And projects were selected based on essentially whether they were identified as concurrency projects that are needed to ensure future level of service standards are met, large projects that the city has committed to and required uh, that require significant city funds to make up project costs or matching grants on those projects that have been federalized, projects, projects that have a high score in various categories based on the metrics that we applied as performance measures in the transportation element and those that are likely to be more competitive for grant resource. Um, and so the list is in attachment A if you're interested in reviewing it more, in more detail. The updated rates, um, so Shoreline's rate uh, currently is at 8,590 per single family dwelling unit. That is the highest rate applied to residential um, and any development. Um, and we're proposing an increase to 10,830 per unit. Um, this, the list you see is a list of pure cities with TIF programs that have similar population and, and are in the Puget Sound region. Um, Shoreline's rate remains pretty much in line with many of its peers, North Bend, Sammamish, Renton, and Bothell. 
other jurisdictions are increasing the rates and it's trending upward. Um, uh, an example of that is Bellevue and Spokane, and TIF is under consideration by other cities, including Seattle. The third recommendation, or I should say compliance to state requirement, um, is House Bill 1110 that directs cities to set TIF rates for accessory dwelling units at 50% of the single family rate. Um, but additionally, this uh, state guidance um, forces jurisdictions to now allow them to be sold individually and not require owner occupation on the same property. So essentially, they are equivalent to a duplex, triplex, and other middle housing types. Uh, so to comply with the state requirements, we recommend setting a single middle housing rate at 50% of the single family rate. Um, and this will, it does reduce TIF revenue as the rate for low-rise multifamily development will be about $700 less per unit. Um, and so these are the rates based on different residential development types. All except one of these rates, the, the middle, the one highlighted, are set based on industry standards for evaluating trip generation. Uh, the rate for low-rise multifamily is 6,126 per dwelling unit, but the city's required to set ADUs at 50%, and so the middle housing rate is set for 5,415, as the single-family rate is 10,830. Staff recommendation number four, which we've split up um, to recognize the housing versus um, this reduction in the high-activity areas, uh, is to adopt a 15% rate reduction in our comp plan identified high activity areas where we intend to focus growth. Um, we recommend this 15% reduction on TIF in these areas as these are areas that are transit rich and therefore let, uh, generate less auto trips. Um, they support growth objectives and focus. Uh, the, the intention is to focus growth into these areas and the reduction does not require payback of city funds, unlike um, in the state in the situation with the exemptions. So HAAs, or high activity areas in shorelines, um, these are candidate countywide centers, um, areas where the city is focusing growth. Um, modeling data and PSRC travel survey data uh, indicated that trips in these high activity areas would be 15% less impactful, <coughs> primarily because trips in transit-rich areas are shorter and there's a lower auto mode share. Um, reduction in the high activity areas also overlaps with um, areas with the vast majority of multifamily housing uh, development capacity. Um, so it, it supports um, so the housing development objectives. Um, staff recommendation number 4B is to maintain existing exemptions for low-income housing. Um, so exemptions are obviously cases where city does not charge an impact fee. Um, in this case, we do need to backfill funds that are not collected, except in the case of early learning and low-income housing um, uh, as specified by uh, state law. And our, we're proposing to retain all exemptions in place and make only adjustments to the business exemptions. Um, so there are current exemptions for uh, sort of temporary structures, improvements not impacting transportation, community-based service providers, um, as well as this low-income housing exemption, which applies to 
30% of expenses for households at um, King County's median family income. Um, and transportation impact funds can be structured to minimize the impact on housing supply. We have attempted to do that both through this existing exemption, setting of the middle housing rate at 50% of the single family rate uh, also supports affordable housing, and a 15% reduction in high activity areas are areas with that uh, higher development capacity for multifamily um, and standing affordable uh, housing requirements. We explored added exemptions to private developers, um, but we do not recommend a change uh, as the state law requires that um, those committing to the affordable housing need to have a permanent covenant and it's unlikely to entice developers um, to provide affordable housing as it requires permanent affordability as opposed to our uh, multifamily tax exemption program which is set at 12 and 20 year uh, time frames. There's also some administrative issues um, in connection to um, expanding the affordable housing levels to private developers. Uh, it requires us to review and monitor maintaining of those affordability levels. Income and rent limits would have to be calculated and set every year, and separate submissions for compliance would be required as well. Oh, sorry, I went too far. Staff recommendation number five is to adopt adjustments to exemptions for businesses and set the expiration for December 31st, 2025. So this is a two-year cycle. Um, so uh, at council last time in July, uh, it was asked for the original motivation behind the business exemptions, Ordinance 717 back in 2016, and Ordinance 843 uh, contain that language. Um, its focus is on reducing the burden on business and incentivizing locating short line. Um, supporting comp plan and other citywide objectives for uh, a diverse array of local shops, restaurants, and services, and fostering a business-friendly environment that supports small and local business. Um, and this sunsetting of the exemptions uh, this December allows us to kind of revisit this in the context of our current situation when it comes to revenue needs for transportation and narrowing the list for better alignment with city goals as well as um, sort of the economic objectives that we're facing right now. Um, in engaging developers, uh, they've noted um, exemptions are obviously a powerful tool to incentivize development. Uh, it's, they are looking for a reasonable rate based on industry standards. Uh, a project by project review, which we do provide as part of our independent assessment um, of impact. Uh, of transportation demand strategy um, improvements that count towards uh, as a credit towards their uh, fees. Exemptions and reductions in areas where the city wants to encourage development were encouraged and retaining most exemptions and adding exemptions for ground floor commercial were also uh, discussed and requested. Um, and the final point um, that we are still exploring uh, how to administer is to address the time TIF is applied uh, when it comes to whether it's at the issuance of a permit for commercial occupancy or at a different time as it currently stands. Um, so overall, the proposal is to remove exemptions for auto-oriented businesses and large standalone uses in alignment with climate action plan objectives, retaining exemptions for production and tourism uses uh, and production uses for broader economic development needs, 
um, adding an exemption for ground floor non-residential uses to align with um, our focus on ground floor retail and uh, a, uh, an additional focus on uh, aligning with exemptions we provide for preferred business activity related to commercial adaptive reuse. So this is the list of um, exemptions that has been updated and uh, we think that it retains the original motivation as well as supporting um, sort of the broader need for uh, financing of our transportation system. Next step, so we'll return to council with a updated version of this based on your comments tonight. Um, we'll incorporate draft code edits and related amendments and ordinance um, and resolution related to the fee schedule and hope to adopt in November, on November 6th. With that, I'll turn it over to the mayor uh, for discussion. Thank you. Questions or comments from council? Councilor Roberts. I'll tee it up. Uh, Thank you. For, I think it's a good time. I mean, I know we talked about this a few months ago, but I think this, in reading some of the material for today and sort of going back and sort of revisiting some of the discussions we've had in the past, I mean, I think this, not only do we have exemptions expiring at the end of the year, but I think generally it's a good time. It's been uh, almost a decade since we really had a comprehensive review of this, and so it's good to sort of Sort of be refreshed about why we're doing this and how we're doing this. Um, but we've also, I mean, as a region, we've also learned a lot uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, I think it really was, I think it was 2010 or so when this state authorized this program. And what, we, what we've realized in many ways is that the cost, uh, we need more affordable housing. And these fees uh, really do add up. Um, when you sort of at, we have, since we've adopted the TIF, we've adopted park impact fees. We've um, worked with the fire district to have a fire district uh, fire fee on top of that. And so it, it's just, these numbers start adding up and even recognizing there's discounts and when we look at the 10,000 or the almost 10,000 figures staff is recommend or over 10,000 figures staff is recommending for single family homes single family homes is not what I mean not what people are paying or not what most developers here are, are paying since there are very few single family house developments uh, in the in the city so I think we have, I think where I'm starting from and want to sort of begin this conversation, I hope with my colleagues, is thinking about sort of what are we doing this for? And how are we doing this and what project? And ultimately, if we're going, I think that it was described last time we talked about this a few months ago, that there are some benefits for having a project list. Um, it helps planning, it helps, uh, even if we don't collect a single dime in fees, by having the project list means that what I understood from the last discussion is that we can sort of, it's easier to work with developers and say these things need to be addressed before development occurs. So all of that said, I look at the, 
I look at how this fee is calculated, and it looks like at the very basis of this, of the calculation of the fee, is the total cost of projects. Is that correct? I mean, there's multiple steps, but at the very basis, the very beginning of it, it's the total cost of projects identified in the list is how the fee is calculated. Is that correct? I think that's correct. I, I'm going to just, for nuance, uh, turn over to uh, Kendra Breland, uh, who's on line uh, with Farron Peers, just to provide any additional insight on that. No, the council member is correct. Uh, the um, list of eligible projects is kind of the first step that you take. And then there are reductions that we take following that list of eligible projects that includes extracting the cost of existing deficiencies, um, some modeling procedures to understand who's using those trips. And then when we get to that eligible list of projects, that eligible kind of cost per trip, um, we match that cost per trip to different land uses. And so I do wanna clarify, we, we provided the single family rate um, in that table just for comparison basis. Um, there are, of course, rates for all kinds of different land uses, including multifamily. I think we've got five or six categories there. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, but I, I, the reason I bring up that number is that our fee is based on what projects, what projects are on the list. And if we, the more projects we add to the list, um, we can certainly do that. We can keep adding more growth projects onto the list, and that would just at the end of the day, raise the fee that everyone would pay. And so what I'm asking us to do, and I think that where I'm at, is that we need to actually take a very closer look at those projects on the list. Because 300, I mean, these looking at the projects on the list, um, most of them are going to, are going to road projects. They're not going to multimodal projects. Um, one of the projects on the list is, seems, I believe, is we've celebrated having full funding for a pedestrian bridge over 148. That's on the list, and so we're at now at, at we're adding that project to the how much new development is going to pay for. And so I think we need to be care. I think we need, as a council, need to take a look at that list and be very strategic about do we does this project really need to be on the list? Are we, does it make sense to keep 185th still on the list? Does it, would it make sense to put more uh, sidewalk and uh, bicycle projects on the list? Uh, Councilmember McConnell and I ended up go, uh, talking to a bunch of activists on, um, on Friday to talking about how do we fix the interurban trail? And so these are projects that aren't on the list um, that have dollar values on it, but they're going to make a bigger an impact, and they're going to make a bigger impact than than potentially widening roads for peak hour traffic that may or may not we may not be able to solve. And so that's what my ask is of this council is. I think the recommendations generally are fine, but I think we need to take a closer look at that transportation project list and with sort of a recognition that the more projects we on the, add on the list, the more that is going to, developers are going to have to pay to put in more affordable, to put in housing and affordable housing in the city. So that, those are my comments. Uh, and thank you, Mayor. 
I can have some clarifications. I'm going to look at Kendra Breland as well. We have the ability, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Kendra, to identify what rate we want to charge. Um, so we do have a list, and it does um, potentially increase the rate, but we can, I think the Public Works Director has the ability to reduce that rate to whatever rate we want. The list is from, as was mentioned, the transportation element, which we adopted last year. And those are projects that we need to fund. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of projects we're trying to fund that we're committed to. We're committed to them because of growth. We're committed to them because of our previous transportation impact fee. Um, with a number of reasons, we provided that transportation element, that 20-year list. That does include multimodal projects. It includes shared use mobility hubs. It includes the 180, 185th corridor, which is a multimodal strategy, which the council has identified as a goal. So we were trying to be strategic in ensuring that we are able to not only fund our existing TIF list, but also support the hundreds of millions of dollars of funds that we're still trying to um, create those um, to, to get done. So for example, 175th is part of that list. Um, that helps with, the, it, it allows us to have our funds go further. That's something that's on the existing list. The 185th non-motorized bridge is fully funded. We're committed to that. But we have to use general fund. This gives us the ability to use the TIF to help with that. We're very excited to have the raise grant. But that means we got 20 million, which is awesome. We asked for 25. We have to fill that gap. The ability to use TIF, especially if we're able to put more multimodal projects on it, allows it to go further. So again, more projects, more opportunities. The fee can be reduced to what we think is what we're comfortable with. What we're trying to do is get as many projects done as quickly as we can before light rail. We're trying to address those with development or supporting development. And so that was why we not only have those existing projects, which do look like they're multimodal corridor, but also added things like the shared use mobility hubs. It's uh, trying to support the transportation element. It's trying to support what you adopted last year as our 20-year strategy to be multimodal and support climate change and safety and all those other goals that we talked about. Anything further, Councilmember? Councilmember Ramsdell, I think I stand up. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, uh, I've been following Community Land Trust for a while, so I've got to ask a question about Community Land, and this one on a tour today. So um, how, do, how are you going to assess TIFs um, with, for a, a, a development um, uh, made by a nonprofit that is, percentage of it is um, uh, market rate and where the owners own the land and the dwelling, and then other part, uh, the majority of the development is where the owners, the, the owner, homeowners just own the, the property. They're just the, uh, the, uh, the building. So how, how are you going to be determining, like, TIF for, the, for the, uh, that type of a development. Thank you. I'm not certain about the specific nuance. I mean, the community-based services is exempt, um, but in this situation, there might be a complication. It might be more complicated to assess. So I'll turn to Kendra or Dadinsky to see how we assess something like that currently and see if what applies. Yeah, I, I can chime in just to kind of tell you the nuts and bolts. Um, we can break it down certainly by, uh, you know, basically the square footage or dwelling units assigned to the low income nonprofit, et cetera, versus the market rate versus the owned property, existing owned property. So we do that all the time with various types of land uses. It's just broken into different categories. 
Councilmember Mark. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I just wanted to clarify, uh, my colleague said that uh, the way he understood it, the fee goes up based on the number of projects on the list. And uh, Ms. Walters, I think you said that's not true, but you didn't say it quite that way, so I wanted to make sure that's And I'm going to look at my lifeline for Kendra Beeland, Yeah, she's my lifeline, but my understanding, because I've asked this question, <laughs> is we have that ability, right? And other cities, I think, have also done So Farron Pierce has been doing TIF updates across the region, if not across the state. And so it's not unusual, correct me if I'm wrong, to have that ability to reduce a rate um, if that's what we so choose. Is that correct? The rate that's represented in the fee schedule uh, represents kind of the ceiling of what you can charge. Um, so council can can choose to charge up to that cost per trip, um, anywhere up to it from zero all the way to where we got to. Um, and it is very typical. Some some councils will charge everything because they really need to make sure that they're funding that the transportation projects to support development or um, you know, capacity needs. But many, many um, councils will also choose to so, um, charge something lower. And so something that, and that's you know kind of why we were providing in the presentation kind of um, where you would stack up against your peers. Typically um, communities will look at kind of what other uh, peer jurisdictions are charging. So Ms. Breland, what I'm confused with is, I, I appreciate that the appropriate leader in at the city of shoreline can adjust the rates up and down what i don't understand is the if the quantity of projects on the list is the decider it's a input to the calculation that we use to arrive at what your maximum allowable charging amount is um, so once we that is that is the nexus between um, what you can charge to development based on the list, based on the eligibility of those projects, based on the amount of growth that you calculate, that's what arrives at kind of what that ceiling rate is for you. Um, of course, you don't have to charge all the way up to that rate. You can, you can elect to charge something lower. And of course, the downside to that is that if you're still gonna be delivering those projects, um, city is gonna need to find um, funding from other sources to deliver those projects. And I, I don't know, Kendra came off of yeah, I, I was just going to chime in with a couple of other kind of caveats to this. One is that we as a city have committed a certain level of service standard for vehicle traffic. So some of the projects on the project list are actually fulfilling that commitment, um, expanding essentially capacity to meet that, that standard. And so those, if we do not include those on the project list or don't fund those essentially, um, the city has to figure out how to pay for it. And that's not an easy task in a lot of cases. So there is a sort of baseline associated with that, that level of service standard adoption uh, that happened with the transportation element. If we were to just drop it down to that bare minimum, however, it would really be at the sacrifice of a lot of the multimodal projects, which are frankly more important than some of those um, basic level of service projects. So. Um, that that would be the trade-off here of removing versus um, keeping the sort of existing list of projects. But yes, it it is scalable um, based on kind of what your goals and, and vision are. 
Thank you. I, uh, that's where I got confused, so I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding it. Uh, Mr. Dom, what kind of information have you gotten from businesses? Have you gotten much feedback? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that, Councilmember Mark. Um, we have learned that um, it's a pretty important uh, exemption. So the, the exemption for business is, is, is something that has actually come up in other venues. Um, and I'm asking, I'll ask you, are you asking me about the exemption in particular or just generally about transportation impact fees and the projects? Yeah. And so um, as a business, I would think it would be advantageous to have good multimodal to attract customers. Yeah. And I was curious if businesses uh, weighted that way, you know, so on one side we're, we're paying more but we're getting more people coming, or are they solely focused on the fee itself? And that's what I was wondering about. So yeah, from, I guess, from the development community, um, I think we hear certainly that the impact fees are a challenge and add to the cost of development. Um, and so that makes it difficult to, to make projects pencil while other costs are very high. Um, as far as those investments into multimodal transportation, I mean, I think we are seeing a lot of investment in shoreline because there's a lot of interest in locating whether it's a multifamily building or business or what have you because we are considered a community that is investing and reinvesting in our infrastructure and trying to improve and grow in the right ways to, to make our city work. Um, and I also do hear from developers that um, they really do believe in our vision of multimodal to the degree that they don't really consider parking necessary anymore for ground floor commercial space. So um, there's definitely some, uh, in some cases, they're adopting or, or expecting to be able to adopt multimodal approach to transportation even more aggressively than we allow for currently. Um, so, yeah, does that, I don't know if that helps or answers your question. Yes, sir. It, it absolutely does. Uh, just final question, Mr. Raker, then. The kind of businesses that Mr. Dom identified as not caring if they have parking, uh, are they part of the ex exempt group? As a generalization, I know we're not in specifics, but is is that what? Could I paraphrase it properly? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So we're there's an exemption for ground floor non-residential uses that we're proposing, and so essentially the, the answer is yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Mayor. Councilor Povey, and thank you, Mayor, and thank you, Natasha, for taking time to talk about the. Um, transportation element project list. As I was going through the staff report, the, the presentation was very summarized, thank you. But in the staff report, I saw the transportation element physically constrained list. Is that a wish list? Whereas the TEPL is a must do. Is the 20 year list a constrained list? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And okay, so, yes. Oh, sorry, go for it. You want to add more? Because that clarifies what Councilmember Roberts, because I was 50-50. But if that is a yes, then that really gives us more explanation to what Councilmember Roberts was saying earlier. We're committed to delivering. Yes. Possibly different, but you've answered my question. Thank okay. you. That's it, Councilmember? Yes. All right. Deputy Mayor. Continuing down the road of clarification, 
the 19 proposed projects funded by TIF, um, just remind us, have those have already gone through some kind of prioritization matrix to, to get to where they are and to get here? Yes. <laughs> All right, so uh, some, uh, as Kendra Dudinsky described, are related to concurrency and fulfilling level of service obligations in the mm -hmm. future. Um, some are large projects that the city has committed to or are federalized and, and require significant city funds to make up project costs or match federal grants. Um, and then projects with high scores were also evaluated in various categories based on the metrics that we applied in the transportation element itself. There was a set of performance measures related to safety, equity, um, modality, and, and a few other factors. Um, and then, and then there was an additional evaluation that the projects are likely to be more competitive for grant resource as well. So that's sort of the criteria used. Equity was also one of the criteria. Yeah. Equity was one of the criteria. Okay. Can you speak into the mic? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's I'm sorry. Up. So yep. there was five criteria that were used to develop the high scoring projects, which included safety. I'm not looking because I'm thinking of <laughs> safety. Um, we had three related to climate resiliency um, and climate impact, multimodality, connectivity, equity, safety, and uh, I think also related to economic vibrancy. SICs, but those were the five metrics that we used. And we looked at high scoring in terms of corridor. Um, we looked, we had the three different categories. I'm looking at Kendra Breel, and we looked, we, we, when we were, came up with those, but we were trying to look at ped bike. We were trying to look at off um, corridor, which is a complete streets approach. So those, um, the, those high ranking ones were included strategically in this list as well. So and so in a future world where, let's say, all of these projects are paid for, does the TIF go away or do they, we pick a new uh, host of projects, figure out what they're going to cost and create a new rate for future development? Yeah, I mean, we have the ability to update this annually as a city, so there's no, you're not like committed for a long period of time if, if you're asking if, if all of a sudden they were funded tomorrow, you know. Um, would we have a new list to turn to? I don't know. Well, going back yeah. to just this idea that the list determines the rate, right? The cost of the list in total projects kind of leads us, guides the rate. Yeah, so it has an influence on the rate, and then we yeah. have the ability to adjust up or down. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. It expands our list of projects, and then we have ability to bring the rate down. So we can basically be more, even more strategic looking at opportunities yeah. and leveraging which we really like to do. So that's one of the, the benefits. It, it, it increases the flexibility by which we can use these funds. So let's say if we want to be opportunistic because one particular project is going to be extremely competitive for a federal grant, we would want to apply these funds as a match. Okay. And we can readdress the TIF rate, you said annually. Did you say that? No? I, I, the projects annually. I believe we can do that, okay. yes. Scrunching yeah. furrowed yes. brows. Yes. Yes. yes to both. <laughs> okay, just one final comment then. I just I know the last time we talked about this, we did do a lot of discussion about um, exemptions for businesses and a lot of confusion. So um, thank you for updating the list. I do think there's there's a little bit more logic here. It's, it feels more today, more current, and um, at noting things like, yes, of course, the Climate Action Plan leads us to um, make this updated decision. So I just want to acknowledge you for recognizing that and um, attributing it here. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember McConnell. 
Thank you, Mayor. Um, having been on the council a long time, we are going to have many opportunities that when these projects are done, there's a 50 more uh, <laughs> right behind it or new ones because, you know, our, our infrastructure deteriorates, our needs change, et cetera. So uh, I am certainly not going to micromanage how those these projects came up here. In fact, we do actually become part of that conversation on the council, so I don't want to um, belabor the specific list because I think it's awesome. You know, I'm sure staff has um, done 10 times more discussing before they came to us to get this list really fine-tuned for all the possibilities. So, oops, I got a little further away from the mic for the uh, video. Sorry. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I am, uh, <clears throat> again, thank you for reminding all of us that it's a 20-year project because, you know, that's long enough, but, but still, uh, I know now and then we have these great grant opportunities that if it's on the list, it's much easier to, um, you know, get something in, in place, matching grants and all of that. So whatever the council can do to help, uh, I really appreciate that that's where we try to go. Um, the, the single family dollar amount raised, is that, I'm just assuming this, but I, you know, doesn't matter how long I've been on the council, I've been wrong. Does that, is that for new single family homes? So then, even though it's, I, I was a little concerned about the increase being, I did the math really quick because I, I just thought it was number one high. And then it's really a 26% increase, give or take, um, from what used to be. So I'm thinking we always, you know, don't want to put all of our money um, or get money out of the backs of our single family um, developments, but we really don't have a lot of them at this point because we're so uh, maxed out. I mean, when I see new single family homes, it's because maybe two lots were demolished and they can squeeze in, uh, you know, a couple more new houses and it's really actually like a HOA kind of thing. That's a whole different thing that, you know, I'm not very um, knowledgeable on, but that's how we get an appearance of single-family homes. So I like that. But so that dollar amount, did that not concern you in terms of us hearing from the community later on? Because that's quite a significant so increase. In answer to the first question, the rate is applied to only new single-family units. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of the rate being concerning, I, I think our position is is that we're in line with yeah. other jurisdictions. We're we're not outside of the realm here. We're this increase is mostly the the um, the reduction or sort of half charging for ADUs and middle housing is responsive to those other housing types that are being encouraged and are needed, um, and state law is, is encouraging as well. Okay. So I, I think we're, we're feeling pretty in line with um, sort of the industry standard across our peer cities. And that's a great reminder for me as a council member when people ask that we really are continuing to be in line. We're not at the high end of it, and we're actually appearing that we now lag behind a little bit. So. We're, we're keeping up with what the other communities are doing with that rate. Um, the last thing was f actually for Dom, the uh, multi 
housing reduction of 15%. That also seems significant in that these are developers that have come to our community and want to make you know, a living off of us, off of our land, et cetera. It's all good for us, but that also seems to be a benefit that is that, again, your um, experience that that is a reasonable reduction for, and, and maybe explain even further so I can feel good about, about that. So the rationale behind the 15% reduction applying only to high activity areas that have been identified as areas of focused development for the city mm -hmm. um, is, is generated based on uh, PSRC travel modeling that indicates that there's a 15% um, reduced impact on the transportation system in similar areas. And Kendra, if you want to add more, you can to this. Um, but uh, the so that reflects a, the 15% redu reduced impact. Additionally, it provides an incentive for focusing growth where you want it to be focused around transit development and the transit-oriented development objectives of the city. Um, and then finally, it, it does provide an incentive in those areas that are um, where most of your multifamily housing capacity is. And so it allows you to meet sort of the housing objectives of the city in that way as well. I, I actually missed that point if it was in the material about reducing impact. That's, that is a key incentive to charge these developers less. Um, but I know from just talking to, de, de, you know, the developing going around light rail stations, there's a lot that's not even happening yet, but it's in the works. It's in writing. So I just wondered if we really are we are we that hard up for for um, the MUR 70 to kick off? And uh, but but I'm glad that we uh, make whatever reasonable reductions to keep it to keep the rocket ship going or whatever. So uh, if there's any more comments about that, I yeah. I, I'm going to chime in just because you did say my name, so it's yeah. like I'm like Beetlejuice. Don't say it three times. But I will say, uh, it, just to reiterate what Jeff said, is that it is really r about right-sizing it for the appropriate level. And so that's why you see that it doesn't require us to, to, to fund it with our own dollars the way you do nor the normal exemption. And so to not have that would be more of a penalty, right, to just have it sort of apply the same everywhere, even though in those locations it shouldn't have at the same level that it does elsewhere. So it's really about right-sizing and not having a unnecessary penalty that would that would sort of prevent or slow down the development in those areas but it wasn't discussed as an incentive as much um, so you know it is more as I said kind of as Jeff mentioned the PSRC data supporting it and the otherwise you know uh, channeling or focusing growth in certain areas um, and just setting it at the right level for what that development uh, model or that built environment will generate in terms of trips thank you I didn't want us as a council to micromanage how you pick these percentages. And I'm glad that you mentioned that there's data behind that, that all this information came to us with a lot of uh, work. Um, and it's exciting to see 20 year projects on the list that actually might happen in uh, the next 20 years. It very likely happens. So thank you very much. Thank you. I had a couple and then we'll go to second round's comments. Um, for starters, when, when we say the business exemptions are sunsetting in 2025, mm -hmm. all that means is we're going to revisit the list in two years. 
<coughs> yes, however, they would okay. no longer apply if, if we were to If we take no action. Yeah. Um, I'm concerned about both the expansion of the list and most about the rate. Um, there's stuff on that list that I'm not sure really should be there. Shared use mobility hubs, when that was presented to us, I think I was the least excited about anybody up here. But I really viewed that as, as kind of a gimmicky, maybe cool thing, not as something that we need to bake into. We must get this funded or else. And I share Councilmember Roberts' concerns that when you have a list this big, it, that does drive the, the rate. That drives what we all think about. We've got to get this stuff built. And I'm not sure we do have to get all this stuff built. That's an overall concern, but the one sort of poison pill in here for me is the uh, low-income housing exemptions. What these rates do, what, what TIF does, is increase the cost of any new construction, obviously. That makes the cost of citing a business here go up if there's not an exemption. That makes the cost of housing go up if there's not an exemption. We are relying on private market developers for most of our 80% AMI and below for rent housing. We require it. And what we do when we don't exempt that construction is we drive up the cost of the market rate. It, it can't work any other way. They, they, have to, they have to compensate for the fact that we were requiring them to build stuff that doesn't sell at the market with increasing market rates. So what we are in danger of becoming is a city that has some mandatory affordable housing and some absolutely out of reach market rate, or a city where the development just stops, where developers say, this is too much, we can't do it. Um, I had hoped we would see a fairly aggressive affordable housing exemption, and I am asking you to go back and take another look at that. Um, for me, affordable housing will always be the elephant in the room, and anything we can do to make sure that folks who make 80% AMI, which is a lot of money, or 100% AMI, which is a lot of money, able to live in this city is, for me, more important than making sure we get all the transit projects that we've, we've proposed funded. I guess I wasn't looking for a response. <laughs> My other note, just as an aside, is whenever Ms. Breland talks, all three of you look up there. And I just want to make sure you knew she's not actually up there. Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. Um, and I appreciate all the comments on the council. I think we've learned a lot more about TF over this last uh, few minutes in this discussion. Uh, but I do want to clarify, a few, again, this is all about clarification, about a few things. If we look at attachment B, is that in the staff report, does that include the all the recommendations proposed by staff, which includes the 15% rate reduction for high activity areas? Sorry, that's the rate table? The, yes, it is. Yeah, the rate table um, is just the, the set rates not including the reductions. So not including the 15%? Yeah, because the 15% only applies in high activity areas, so you'd have to determine okay. location based on that. So, okay, but so even still when I'm looking at um, the current TIF rate for housing multifamily in this, it, the current rate is from 1.8, well, 1.8, K to five point five at the low end, and then at the high end, it's uh, multifamily, mid-sized, I believe, or above three stories, three three to five, I believe it was. I'll have to look again. So okay, so if the high end is that, it was hard just. I mean, it's, since there's multiple ways of being broken down, it does appear that there is a slight reduction for multifamily. Or I, I'll turn to Kendra on whether there's an actual reduction for multifamily, but 
certainly. I, I, I can clarify that for you. So in our industry practice relies upon stat transportation studies um, through the IT trip generation manual. Um, and the trip generation manual will tell you that a multifamily development project is going to generate less trips than a single family home as an example between types of things. And so that's why you'll see a lower rate for a multifamily compared to a single family. And that is true for all of the land uses that are included in the rate table. There are studies associated with each one of those land use types, if that makes sense. Thank you. Um, my, my question though is, if um, is the proposed rate actually less for multifamily under the proposed, under what's being proposed than what it is currently? It, it certainly is for the ADU middle housing, sort of the, the equivalent is mid-sized right. multifamily. Um, as an overall, I, I'm gonna, Kendra Breland, can you answer that? I don't have it on the top of my head, but I know we've been doing some comparatives. That's probably one we could follow up with. Because yeah. um, I, if I understand the council member's question, you're asking, what is the multifamily rate today on your fee schedule versus what is the multifamily rate um, that is being proposed today by staff? That is correct. Um, I, I could look it up, but I, I feel like that would almost be bubbling too much and we could answer you quickly after the meeting. That, that's fine, I appreciate that. I, the reason I ask is that there was a suggestion here that we're actually lowering rates, um, and but it doesn't, it's not clear that we're actually lowering rates for any type of development. All types, yeah, no, not certain, yeah. Um, Correct. The lowering of the rate is compared to the IT um, because the state middle housing bill requires that you can't charge ADUs in certain middle housing types more than 50% of the single family rate. What we were sharing is that we're not charging the full rate that would be charged based on the IT trip generation manual. It is being reduced in response to the state legislation. Right, so yeah, there would be a reduction for ADUs um, for certain missing middle types under this recommendation, but not other types of other forms. Large multifamily and other types of multifamily are based on the industry standard for the IT right. rates, as are all others. Exactly. So whatever, the only discount they would get would be, under this recommendation, would be the 15% high activity areas and whatever or whatever percentage we want to charge as uh, across the board. So if yeah, we want to charge 98%, Unless it's a nonprofit some, developer. Unless it's nonprofit Providing it. Um, and I'll, just, I'll, can I, sorry, can I clarify one little point too? When we're talking about a multifamily redevelopment project, typically they are going to be working with us on travel demand management strategies, which are going to typically qualify them for further reductions. So I would say in just about every case of multifamily redevelopment, we are working with them kind of hand in hand on um, strategies to reduce their impact to our system and therefore qualify them for trip reduction and therefore TIF reduction. So um, there are certainly not insignificant um, fee reductions based on multiple factors that we consider kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. So I just want to throw that out there too. And then a final point is that there's a significant geographic overlap between the multifamily tax exemption areas and the high activity areas where that 15% reduction would right. apply and they have affordability requirements in right. those areas in return for that exemption. 
Thank you. My other sort of question, just to clarify, is that when we're looking at the pure cities uh, in these charts, we're only looking at cities that actually have a TIF. One of the cities that doesn't isn't on the list is the city of Seattle. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So because Seattle does not have a TIF rate. Seattle does not have a TIF rate. Okay. So we're when we compare projects, we're and we're pure we're within sort of average within those cities that have a TIF. But when we look or compare ourselves to Seattle. We're well above. The list Seattle. we showed was peer cities within the region that have a TIF program that have a similar population. Yeah, correct. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Councilor yes, Republic. Thank you, Mayor. Just want to clarify one more time the first question I asked. Deputy Mayor asked it differently, and the response was different. So I just want to make sure. The transportation um, element, fiscally constrained project list, is a wish list. <laughs> okay, so we have a constrained and unconstrained. The constrained 20-year list included a projection of revenue. Um, it included an assumption based on trends of how much we would have in general fund and other revenue sources, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but, but okay. it was um, based on what we think we, we could reasonably right. obtain within 20 years. Yeah. It is required we have a constrained list by state law. And so that is, we looked at prioritization of projects, we looked at existing deficiencies, we looked at uh, things we've committed to because they're federalized that we need to build. Um, I might be missing something, but those were the main categories for coming up with that 20-year constrained list. Okay, so my, where I'm driving to is that the list serve as a variable in calculation and arriving at the rate. The list was, we selected from that list, and the, and that was the, the length of the list creates the cap for what the TIF rate can be, the cap, the height, the highest, and then we have the ability, I'm not going to look up there, <laughs> we have the ability Sorry. to reduce that rate. <laughs> if I may. Um, Impact fees, one of the you know real um, kind of premises in state law, one of the principles is that impact fee programs really need to fund realistic projects that you know are on your they're in your transportation element. Um, they're you know projects that the communities put some real thought to it. Again, you know as as staff shared early in the presentation, it's not a promise. We don't know that we'll be able to fund it over the twenty year. Um, but they can't be, you know, more of a wish list. They need to be things that the community is more serious about. And so that's why we really look towards uh, the fiscally constrained 20-year uh, project list listed in the transportation element. Um, and um, in terms of arriving at the rates, actually, I did have a moment um, just to answer the other council members' question. Um, many of our multifamily rates are actually lower uh, than the multifamily rate uh, that you are charging today in your current program. All right. Anything else? Councilor Mark. Holy moly, is this complicated. It's a lot. <laughs> uh, excellent presentation. If I just like, you, you really attempted to take a very complicated story and make it understandable, and I'd like to say thank you. I'm, you and the Kendras really did a wonderful job. Um, 
gekennt. <lacht> <lacht> I, I, I just want to make sure, though, I'm, I'm, as we keep pressing on this, you answered my question beautifully just after, it, it, at the next person doing it. So let me just say what I think you told, what you told us. You told us that to get grants and to select, uh, to be able to get more money is great if it happens to be on a list. And that we, meaning the city, can adjust the rate up and down. So the mere fact it's on the list does not impact what the rate is it's that it's on the list that gets us the grant. Those are the magic words for me. <laughs> so let me make sure I'm understanding where the magic is. Is the magic in the fiscally, the, the constrained list, the TE list that's constrained? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. I love the word magic, yes. So yeah. yes, that's where we start with. And then we move to the tip. But, the, the, well, the TIF gives us that ability. And I'll just add, as a clarification, mm -hmm. is really all, a lot of our grant sources want to be less money in. The more sources we have that we know we have that are ours, the more we can leverage that. And so we are more competitive for other grants. So it's a value to have that in, in terms of a really incredibly competitive market right now, mm -hmm. so to speak. That might work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so yes, to that's get the, the magic. Yes. Uh, all in. Okay. Love that. Thank you very much for clarifying that because that's really to me uh, where we are. I really like mobility hubs, so I have to say I'm disagreeing with the mayor. Big deal to me. These multimodal transportation projects are going to be so hard to get here, and being able. But I think they're also ones that people would look at who have grant money favorably. So I'm ecstatic about this. Thank you for the presentation. Anything other, anything further? All right, thank you much. And I think we have one more study session coming up. Yes, then, yeah. thanks. Appreciate your time, Council. All right, next up is study item 8B, which is the discussion of the wastewater low-income discount program. And I see uh, Ms. Lane and Mr. Jensen in person. Good evening, Mayor and Council. It's a pleasure to be with you and to give you an update on our wastewater low income um, discount program that we have been working on since last year when you received guidance from you after several discussions. I'm going to turn the um, chair over to Peter Jensen, our finance manager, who has all the details. But before we get into that, I want to let you know that there is one change from the staff report. Um, following your dinner meeting with the um, Seattle City Light, you may have noticed that they provided a number that didn't jive with our staff report. We then followed up with them and found out that the corrected number they had given us hmm, six weeks ago was um, actually incorrect. And so that's good news, really good news. And it doesn't change our recommendation. 
because of other changes. But I'm gonna let Peter give you the details on that. So I just wanted to lay that out for you. All right, wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. And good evening, Mayor. Good evening, Council. Um, like Sarah mentioned, I just wanted to give you a quick background and an update on the low-income wastewater discount program. So since Ronald, the Ronald Wastewater Assumption in 2021, um, one of the first things that the city did was undertake a rate study. And we engaged the FCS group um, who consulted us on a rate study for uh, supporting ongoing operations and, and in continuing infrastructure. Um, and as part of that, uh, we presented to council um, on a number of key issues. There were four main issue papers, one of which had to do with low income assistance. And it was a little over a year ago that we presented to council and one of, in your direction um, was to continue the 50% discount program that we currently have in place. But as part of that, expand that program. Right now, the program is only eligible to those um, who are of a certain age requirement or who have a disability, as well as um, they have to be homeowners. So there's a large percentage of the population that are low income that do not qualify. And so your direction was to continue, look into expanding that program as well as um, is maintaining the discount percentage um, without dramatically imp impacting rates. And so since that time, we have moved forward with adopting the 2023 rates with um, that methodology that was recommended from the council and from guidance from the rate study that was conducted by the FCS group. Um, on the, like I mentioned, there were four kind of alternatives that we could go down when it comes to the low income assistance program. And when we presented to council a little over a year ago, options three and four were the two that council directed us to explore. And those options are highlighted in green. And one of the options, option three, was to pursue an opportunity to partner with Seattle City Light to see if we could take advantage of um, combining efforts to uh, provide re rate relief through their electricity bills since they do provide um, shoreline residents with electricity. So since we do not um, bill wastewater utility to all renters, that was an avenue to provide them rent relief. Since that time, we have um, been up unsuccessful in partnering with Seattle City Light just due to limitations that they have. And so that really has left us with pursuing option four and looking into options that we may have uh, for implementing the program through that method. So like I mentioned, um, we have not been able to um, partner with Seattle City Light and the latest number that they provided us of shoreline residents who are um, who are uh, in their rate relief program is 2,300 participants in the city of Shoreline. And so with that, um, with that internal processing um, option, option four, we really have two methods where we could outsource the work or we could process that program internally. And in looking through several different avenues on how we could accomplish this, um, we've done some cost analysis on that. And our recommendation, which we'll highlight in the next slide, is to um, continue the previous council guidance of processing quarterly um, rebates um, to those who renters, 
as well as providing homeowners with the continued uh, rate relief, 50% discount. Um, but as part of the program to administer rebate checks, uh, add a 0.75 FTE for this program. And with that, it provides its minimal admin costs when compared to outsourcing. Um, and it also gives us flexibility when it comes to growth of the program and, and does so at a moderate cost. And so our recommendation to council tonight, like I mentioned, is to um, uh, move forward with internal processing of quarterly rebates for wastewater customers, as well as the 0.75 FTE will be in addition to the mid-biennial budget amendment. And so with that, I want to thank you for your attention and want to open up for questions or and any continued guidance that you may have for us. Questions or comments from council? Councilmember Mark. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, if I could get you to go back one slide. Sure. I don't understand why you don't want to do annual rebates. So there's a couple couple reasons why. Um, when we're talking about kind of the target um, population that we're we're looking to support, annual rebates are a rebate that are that's once a year, and it's something that cannot support them throughout the course of the year. So with when we bill homeowners, they receive that rate each time we bill them, which is every other month. With renters, they would only get the rebate once a year, and so they do not get that assistance in a timely manner. So by having a quarterly rebate, yes, it's not as frequent, but it's at least something throughout the course of the year that helps with those bills throughout, throughout the year versus that one-time assistance. I Makes sense. I, I understand why you are, are saying that. What I'm really concerned about is, is though we're trying to balance costs and we're trying to understand um, it's, you know, it's people who are not low income who are paying for this. And that just trying to think through where, where the correct balance is. And my colleagues here, uh, you know, were quite clear that they wanted to expand this program. So uh, I respect that and understand. But I'm just trying to uh, yeah, understand the whole balancing part as we try to do this, the sewer rates are going up. I'm on the the sewer rate King County group, and oh my goodness, it's the people who need it now are going to really need it, but also people who are okay now are going to be. It's going to become more and more of an issue for them. So I'm just concerned if there is there a way to make the the kind of additional staffing and admin costs is there a compromise is it every six months and and it's not 30,000 and 9,000 but it's something less uh, so that's that's where I'm going thank you thank you do you want to respond? and I, I would say that we could go to every six months um, I'm not sure that that would make that much of a difference. I would almost say if you're going to go to six months, you may as well do once a year. Um, and the cost would be less. We could probably hire a temporary for a period of time. It would be lower cost. Um, it, what it wouldn't achieve is giving that timely assistance to those who need it. And um, obviously a monthly rebate 
would be, but that just is very cost prohibitive. And this, there is a challenge because we will require, the renters will have to apply. They'll have to be filling out the paperwork every quarter. Now theoretically, they've applied for Seattle City Light. We're gonna make it as simple as send us your Seattle City Light bill that shows your address, your, that you're eligible for the discount with them. And we make sure we haven't already issued them a rebate for that period and we'll then you know, process the rebates. So we're going to try and simplify the process. But there, there will be some effort on the part of the renters to receive this. And one thing I'll just add to that real quick, if you don't mind. Um, when you're talking about renters, you're talking about people who tend to move around quite a bit. And so um, having a more frequent process helps try to catch them where they're at at that point in time. So by having something once a year, you may not be able to get assistance <laughs> to them in that timely fashion. And, and I don't disagree. I mean, <laughs> they're noble goals. I appreciate yeah. what you're saying. I'm just, I'm, I'm worried sure. about everybody else and the impact. So thank you. Councilmember Poby. Thank you, Mayor. You had mentioned what the number Seattle City Light gave, which is 2300 Was there something different? Because that's what is in the report, but that's yes. just by the way. Okay. So originally in the rate study, they gave us a number that was very much in line with this number, but then when we were continuing to look into and really look into how we would implement the program, that number jumped significantly to 6700 participants and what we found it was due to how they um, pulled their information um, and so we've fortunately our recommendation did not change like Sarah mentioned because of of, of that um, difference in information um, but that the staff report does reference that 6700 number and and does mention that if that level of participation were to occur that it could further impact rates Fortunately, we do not have to go down that path and explore yeah. that. So. Okay. Thank you, then. So my question has to do with 0.75 FTE. Is that part of the initial uh, ask for uh, FTEs during the budgeting process, or this is an add-on? It would be an additional ask, so it would be something that you would see in the mid-biennium. It would, it would be a new FTE, which we try not to to do so much, but that's why we're talking now about the program. And our, we didn't include that with last year's ask because our deepest desire was to partner with Seattle City Light since they're already doing this work. Um, since we were unsuccessful, we put on our thinking caps for other options. Okay, that's the same reason I'm asking. They already, they already have the program is running well, but we want to in-house this. Okay. Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. So just to start from where we are, we're only giving, the, the proposal here is to give a discount based on what uh, Shoreland Wastewater charges are that for our administration, for the district's administrative costs, we're not asking, people are not getting a discount on charges from King County or other Entities, is that correct? It's for the full bill, which includes it the is treatment. for the full bill. Okay. That. So, um, what would be for at least at current rates? What would sort of be that sort of quarterly payment that we're or quarterly rebate that would be? 
With the proposed um, 2024 rates that we're moving for, forward with, the uh, the assistance would be roughly $160 a quarter. Okay, so this is significant. Um, I somehow I thought it was just our portion. <laughs> uh, so, um, okay, that that definitely does help. <laughs> Um, was there any thought about a credit on the bill rather than charging and then rebating? The challenge we have with that is with renters, we only bill homeowners. And right. so uh, with renters, we would not be able to, we don't bill them directly. And so there's no way to provide a credit. The only way that we could, that we were hoping to give a credit is through CL City Light on their bill. But since that was unsuccessful, We've pivoted to this rebate check. So, approach. with this change, assuming this change is made, what we individuals would, because there is currently a credit, there is currently a credit for that's given. So that fifty percent credit would go away January first, and they would those individuals who are currently getting credit would now get a quarterly rebate under the staff recommendation. Under the um, staff recommendation with with this uh, program, we would be grandfathering in the existing um, participants in the program, and then the homeowners would not be, they would get the credit on their bill. So the rebates are solely for the renters of the program. And would individual homeowners be able to proactively get into the credit or so would there still would be yes. two different programs there would be one the credit for homeowners and then a rebate check for renters who are paying their the bill correct correct yes okay um good <laughs> i like to hear that um the last question i or at least i think the last question that i have is So I want to ask this. <laughs> um, and I just lost it. Wasn't that, wasn't that, wasn't that. <laughs> um, come back to me, Mayor. Fair enough. Deputy Mayor. Just one question. Um, and it comes back to the number of client uh, eligible clients. The, you said that when you thought it was 6,700, that your recommendation didn't change, but I assume the financial impact was considerably more. Just in consideration for, you know, Councilmember Mork's comment that a whole lot more people may suddenly find themselves in need of and eligible for the credit. I'm just wondering how how much how much higher does that financial impact go, and how it if you could just talk about that for a moment. Sure. So what, a couple of things we looked into when we first um, received that number is one of the first steps we did was re-engage re the FCS group who did the initial rate study. And we wanted to get an idea of what, what was the impact on rates. And obviously in a program where you opt in, you're not going to get 100% participation day one. And so when we engaged the FCS group, the uh, the impact on rates 
even at a 50% mark after two years was quite insignificant. And that was assuming 3,000 participants. Okay. And so, so under that kind of methodology, their recommendation to us was to not adjust rates at all, even with that information that proved to be incorrect. And so what their recommendation was to monitor kind of the level of involvement to see if we need to revisit rates down the road. And so that was something that we uh, determined, even though that's one of the reasons why our recommendation did not change, because we wanted to, that we saw that it made sense to move forward with this program, because the assumption being that participation would not be 100% day one. And I will add to that, though, our goal will be to get participation as high as possible. And yeah. so we will be making every effort. However, if that max participation number is 2,300 versus 6,700, we're good at 2,300. If we find that we never get to that level, then theoretically in the future rates could be positively impacted. You know, that because our, our rate study assumed full participation, assuming Seattle City Light was just going to give <laughs> the money. Mm -hmm. So. Thank you. Mr. Roberts. Yeah, thank you. I remembered. Um, the question was around eligibility and how frequently. Um, you described in the staff report that every time a individual would want a rebate check, they'd have to recertify. I am concerns about that. I think that's a lot of work and a lot of, um, I think that a lot of, I mean, I think that the more steps we put in, I mean, adds costs on, on the administrative side, but also has, makes it burdensome for people who qualify, who would otherwise qualify for the rebate from actually receiving the rebate. And so, I mean, I am concerned with the idea that someone would have to recertify every quarter um, SEL requires a recertification every two years. I just looked that up. I think we can do better. Um, so I encourage you to look and figure out ways to do better in terms of making this program easy, as easy as possible for eligible residents to receive this discount. I think, I, I think we need to do better than something like we have to, someone has to fill out the form every quarter. Some of the challenges, because we have definitely thought about that, and one of the reasons Seattle City Light can do better is because people turn off their electricity as soon as they move. And so nobody's going to continue paying their electricity bill in order to get electricity di discount. In this situation, when we're talking about renters, so for people who own their homes, that's not a problem. They'll get the discounts and they'll only recertify once a year. But for, but for others, if they're renters and they move, we would be then issuing checks to potentially people who no longer are residing there. Check gets forwarded, they cash it, and um, we're issuing that rebate. I. I'm just not sure that we can accept that level when our other ratepayers are subsidizing that that rebate. So again, our goal is to make the process as absolutely simple as possible, and that's why using Seattle City Lights discount program really should help make that easy. You know, 
and we're gonna, I mean, we've, we're working to have an online where they can just upload a copy of their bill, you know, take a picture of it, upload it. We'll have our .75 FTE, we'll just be doing that validation. And again, we looked at doing an automated approach for this, it was very costly. Um, we think that in this situation, the human touch is what's going to make it easier. I, I mean, we'll continue to, to look for options, but I'm, I'm just not sure we can accept the fact that we would be issuing checks to people who are no longer residents. I'm, I'm wondering if one of our challenges is that we don't have a actual registry of rentals in the city. Um, yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm not aware of one. I mean, we don't. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if something like that, I mean, thinking about sort of, I know this council's talked about policies around rental protections and the like, whether having that kind of registry would actually help with the administration of something, a program like this. So, um, but I still encourage, my point stands, I encourage us to do better. Thank you, Mayor. Councilmember Ramsell, anything? No, all right, let, let, me, let me add a thought and then I'll come back to you. Um, do you have anything, Councilman? Okay. Um, I, I'm totally with him on that. I mean, I, I, I get that, but that just seems to be more of a, a, a philosophical objection than a practical one. I, I think that will happen. You will have rebate checks go out, and some of them will get forwarded in cash by someone who now lives in Illinois. But I think that's going to be pretty low. I mean, I just don't see that as a giant problem. And I do see people regularly forgetting to mail in their form and missing out. And I also see a staff member who's got the not very exciting job of every four months looking at the same dang set applications. It, it, that really jumped out at me too. And, and I think we can do, we can do yearly if there's really a concern about it. Can we write "do not forward" on the envelope? I mean, I, I, I don't know. There may be some practical ways to do it, but it just seems labor intensive on both sides. And anything that increases red tape, I'm generally not a giant fan of. Councilmember. I thought it was a pretty good idea, <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. That that the I'm I'm envisioning all this filling out of his taking a picture of a, a check, and that's kind of a different thing on an invoice. Uh, but moving forward, I, I appreciate and respect what my colleagues are are saying. Your answer, though, Miss Lane, uh, kind of concerned me, uh, and Mr. Jensen kind of concerned me from FCS, so is what they're saying we have enough money that it's not going to impact our operation, then why are we collecting so much money? If we have we have so much that we won't miss it, why are we collecting it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? We, we budgeted, we did the rate study based mm -hmm. upon the anticipation of full participation mm -hmm. at that 2000 level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we get something less than that, I mean, but it's the same, we might frequently that happens and then mm -hmm. when we go and adjust our rates again, you take your fund balance and that can change the next round of rate study. So I think like many rates, you're doing it in arrears. Yeah, you're go looking backwards. Mm -hmm. Exactly. what you're saying, you're looking yeah. at backwards things. Thank you. All right, anything else? Um, real quick, uh, that comment triggered to me that may keep us 
pretty even. But for some people, $160 or whatever, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I get that we are here trying to help low-income people, and those utility bills are, are horribly unpredictable. They will go up. I've been on regional water quality. There's very little control at the city level. It just comes down. We vote on it, but it's it's already um, almost a man. Um, I would call it a mandate. It's what the big organization has figured out what they have to charge to keep uh, flush, or you know, with their um, predictors of keeping their doors open and things like that. And we're really in general behind on clean water and all of that and that's a way more complicated subject that I want to talk to so I was really trying to keep quiet but I get that that kind of money is a big deal if you really don't have a lot and, uh, and so I don't have to be in that boat to appreciate it thank you all right. anything further from council what are next steps on this so the next steps would be that we would include the 0.75 um, FTE in the um, budget request. I will say, I think at this point, I would say you might expect that. Peter and I will work hard to see if we can come up with other alternatives to streamline that. If we can do it with less than 0.75, know that we will do that. Um, so. so all we vote on is the budget expenditure, the details of the program are operational. And yeah, we exactly. Guidance and, all right, okay. Any, anything further from council? All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, following adjournment, which is up next, we are going to have a closed session to address collective bargaining, but as of now, the public meeting is adjourned.